episode 316, Unexpectedly Talking About Employers, with David Carmouche, MD, from Oshner, a large health system. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. I don't know what I thought we were going to talk about during my interview with David Carmouche, MD, today, but I'm glad it turned out exactly as it did. Lately, we've had a number of guests on Relentless Health Value talking from the point of view of the employer, what a self-insured employer wants and needs from the large and small providers in their network. Today, we're flipping the script and talking about what a large provider organization wants and needs from the commercial side of its payer mix. If value-based care or risk shares are to be a thing, we can't have, as Troy Larshgard has put it, all risk and no share. Today, I had the honor and pleasure of speaking with Dr. David Carmouche. Dr. Carmouche started out as a physician in a multi-specialty group. He practiced there for about 15 years before leaving to become chief medical officer at BCBS, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Louisiana. Five years ago, Dr. Carmouche transitioned to Oshner Health, where he is currently executive vice president of value-based care and network operations. At Oshner, Dr. Kamush helps lead the value-based care agenda. That's everything from managing strategic partnerships with payers, as well as managing risk in value-based contracts for Oshner and affiliated network partners across their ACO and CIN, clinically integrated network. Highlighting one point that Dr. Kamush makes early in our chat, there's four things that have to come together for meaningful value creation for providers. Number one, willingness of providers and provider leadership to think and do things different than they have historically. Number two, they have to be able to affect payment for those things. Three, they have to have data and be able to access it. And then four, some control over steering patients. This kind of sets the stage, actually, for our fast dive in this conversation right into employer and commercial collaborations. Three of the four things on that list, affecting payment, data, steering patients, are right in the wheelhouse of forward-thinking employers or commercial payers slash TPAs trying hard to compete for or serve employers. Just a quick heads up here. Coming soon, we're going to release a second episode with Dr. Carmouche giving some great advice for the leadership of provider organizations who are trying to figure out their transition away from FFS to a more risk-based, value-based model. One quick point that I thought was also relevant to the show today, it was super interesting to me how quickly Dr. Karmush got from, in air quotes, transition to value to, in air quotes, knows how to collaborate with other organizations. Here's the pretty obvious inference. You can't transition to value if you don't know how to play well with others to co-create value and share the rewards of such an endeavor. There might be a broader lesson in here for whoever you are in the healthcare ecosystem. And I'm looking at you, pharmacy, pharma, tech, societies, bukas, etc. Thanks so much to Brian Klepper for the introduction to Dr. Carmouche. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. And my name is Stacey Rector. Dr. David Carmouche, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Great to be here. 
you are the perfect person to talk about our topic today, given that you are in charge of the value-based care agenda at the largest IDN in the employed South. One of the things that you have spoken about is how important collaboration is to achieve this value-based agenda, you know, and value-based success. You've mentioned payers, you work at a provider. If we're going to achieve value-based success, who needs to be at the table working together? Yeah, I've kind of evolved my thinking about this. And certainly there are lots of players in the healthcare ecosystem that theoretically could partner. I think the most important partnerships that are likely to lead to value are those between payers or purchasers, and there it's largely employers, many of whom are self-funded, and providers. And it's really around aligning four things that I think have to come together for meaningful value creation. I think you have to have a group of providers who are willing to do something or a set of things different than they have done historically. You've got to have the ability to affect payment for those things. So you have to control or strongly influence the payment for what you want providers to do differently. You've got to have the data and be able to access data across both of those environments to power activities. And then finally, you've got to have some control over patients or members to steer them into that environment. And so I think the best opportunity to do that is is in collaborations but you know between payers or employers and providers. I think we've actually tried and we've got some examples of that and I'm certainly we can get into that and we've had learnings, successes and some failures. I think there's a lot of interest in digital technologies, digital companies that offer digital healthcare solutions and those theoretically could be the context for collaborative work with providers. Uh, the payment model, and then getting patients to adopt these digital models become really, really challenging. So for me and and for our group, we're focusing specifically on payer employers today. We think that's where there's the biggest opportunity. So let me go through your four success factors, core pillars, whatever we want to to call them. You said you got to have a group of providers, number one, willing to do things different. So the old think different, um, Steve Jobs, that's number one. Number two, you got to affect payment for these things. Obviously, you want to incent the thinking different or doing different, maybe. The third thing that you said was data, having the data to be able to power these activities and measure. And then number four, some control over patients and what the members choose to do, which I'm inferring means benefit designs. Correct. And then you spiraled around to who you could partner with to affect these four pillars because, you know, just thinking about like the data, well, you know, you need to have some level of claims data to do some of this stuff. So I could see how you wouldn't be able to pull this off yourself. And then you said something interesting. You said you pivoted, you know, you're talking about payers and then you pivoted immediately to employers. Is there anything to be inferred by that? You know, is it the employers that are driving maybe commercial carriers or are you talking about you're working more and more with more direct payment models with employers or both? It's really both. So first of all, I think there's an overarching reason for most health systems to want to grow their commercial market share and their commercial business. The reality of it is the demographics in most markets are shifting more of the payment to the federal government as we age into Medicare at a greater pace in most markets than we grow new commercial lives. So there is this kind of desire by most health systems to 
to earn a, a share of wallet in the commercial space. And so, you know, a lot of the in commercial insurance comes through relationships today in the United States with employers. So there's two flavors of that. Louisiana is a relatively small group employer market. And so the fully insured products are still those that are, are very prevalent. And so, you know, our strategy there has been to build products on our provider network that we could create differentiated pricing or differentiated experiences in the market as in an attempt to garner commercial market share in the fully insured segments of that business. But at the same time that we're doing that, many mid-sized employers have moved themselves frequently on the advice of brokers into self-funded positions. And we have had to learn how to engage through direct conversations with employers or through collaborative conversations with brokers. So we're doing a little bit of both all in an attempt to be competitive in the commercial space. And when you say competitive in the commercial space, what does that look like? Does that look like episodic bundles? Does that look like really low FFS rates? For us today, our most robust offering in the market are products. And in in one case, fully insured products where we actually have a joint venture with a commercial carrier in the market, and we actually share in the underwriting gains and losses of the product 50-50. And so it's as close to being uh, in the insurance business as we can. Uh, The network is largely our network. We have a lot of say on the benefit design. We have a lot of say on member outreach and onboarding. We can deliver care coordination. We can deliver innovative services like digital or telemedicine. And usually also do have to give a bit of a discount on the fee-for-service rates to create a premium differential that's competitive and and interesting to employers. These products are frequently offered alongside PPO network products. And so there's always the question of whether at the employee level, cost is the main driver or access to their particular physician or their particular hospital. So competitive meaning that we can be competitive from a consumer's perspective on both price and hopefully experience, and then create a value prop for the employer sponsoring us by virtue of lowering their overall healthcare spend. And do you have any results of that joint venture? You know, like, have you been able to achieve the quadruple aim or at a minimum, good outcomes at a lower cost? So we have generated profitability under that insurance for ourselves. So, I mean, I think I don't have the data at the employer cut, mostly because uh, many of the employers who are participating, you know, have a group size of 10 or 15 employees. But when you aggregate all those lives uh, together, you know, there have been several years where our, our gain share on the performance of that product is in the millions of dollars. And those products were built on a set of fee-for-service rates that were lowest in the market relative to our PPO rates. We have anecdotal information around experience and certainly the uptake of these products by the broker community would suggest that they are increasingly seeing these as solutions that are valued by employers. So it's a little bit of a long answer. I'm not trying to evade it. It's just hard to, at a group level, from the purchaser side of this, explain whether we've achieved what they wanted, but certainly on our side, we've been able to do that. Well, what I'm understanding, you were talking about FFS rates that were lower. Are you able to make that a profitable endeavor because you are 
sharing in the profit of the entire JV. It's not like you as a provider are trying to take your cut and then the payer is trying to take their cut too. That's right. So it's a great question. It's the pivotal question. And I think we have a directional answer to that, but it's not a pure answer. Let me, let me explain. So yes, I mean, the thought is that we're going to give up a, let's call it a 10% fee-for-service rate discount. For that to work economically for us, a couple things have to happen. Number one, using the benefit design of the products that sit on top of the network, we've got to capture more of the required care of the membership. So today in a, in a traditional PPO environment where we even have, you know, value-based contracts in place, only about 55 to 60 percent of the total medical expend for a given population, let's say in New Orleans, where we have significant provider density, occurs within our system. So we know about 40 to 45 percent of the care being delivered is outside of our system. So one of the ways that we can justify a rate discount is to capture more of that. And we know in our narrow network products, at times we're capturing 80 plus percent of the care based on benefit design. Add on top of that, the underwriting margin that we're, we're sharing in 50-50 with the employer. And we think the economics ultimately work. The reason I caveated it is that there are probably groups today where we already see 80% or deliver 80% of the care of a group for a specific group that may be small. And frankly, we may be discounting that, that care 10%, and there may or may not be enough margin in the product offering to make up for that. So there's probably cases where the economics don't work, but we hopefully, but at, at a macro level, we believe it probably works. And as importantly, to some degree, it's a bit of a defensive play. There are others in our markets who are doing, who are executing on the same strategy. And so in some ways we do it to also make sure that our patients don't find themselves in products offered at their employers that don't have us in the network or don't have us in a preferred place in the network. So it's hard to really value, you know, that. So when you put it all together, we think it's still a good strategy for us. It sounds like the competition is moving way upstream. In the past, everybody just sort of got on network, right? And then you'd put a big sign on the, you know, billboard on the highway trying to get patients to come to your facility, right? Now it's yep. almost like you got to make yourself part of the benefit design in these narrower networks. or actually create a plan even with these payers. Otherwise, you can't join the network. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting. So it's so funny. When I was at, at Blue Cross, you know, I remember there was a time when I was there and I thought, that for some of the larger systems in, in the state, uh, if I could get them all to have their own network products and I could put those products into the market and let the market work like a true market and let these large systems through their products compete with each other, that I would have taken a huge burden off of me as the payer. And, and frankly, they would have competed on value. They, they would have had their an auto regulator on their desire for fee schedule increases because it would, it would impact the premium pricing of their products. They would have to create differentiated experiences. They would have to control the medical spend better. So I, in some ways, in a perfect world, a commercial carrier would have a set of network products that were built on their dominant or larger organized providers in the market and let them compete with each other versus these very open access, broad products that tend to become very expensive over time and frankly, don't foster 
significant competition. So you said when you were at Blue Cross Blue Shield, has that opinion changed or are you still of that same mind? When I was at Blue Cross, we didn't achieve it, but I think they've they've kind of achieved it today. I think Auctioner was the first large health system provider in Louisiana to step forward um, with a commercial product strategy through Blue Cross. I think you now see some of our competitor networks launching their own products to the market. So in some of the MSAs in Louisiana now, I think they have achieved it. What they haven't done, though, is forced employers to only offer narrow network products. So typically what happens today is there's still a broad PPO product. It's much more expensive. Alongside that sits one or more narrow network products. And so in all honesty, we're competing for pieces of the business. The ultimate competition would be we're the only products offered were narrower or high-performing products, and then we were truly competing with our competitors for the lives within the employers in the market. Another thing that you brought up, speaking of contracting nuances, it sounds like if the payer and the provider are working together in a collaborative way that not only do outcomes go up and costs goes down, but you've said this several times, patient slash customer experience goes up. And that's also sort of interesting and and not discussed a ton, but I guess it sort of makes sense because if a payer and a provider are constantly at each other's throat and financial toxicity is always lurking around a corner if you're a patient, and you're getting sent all over the place and has to be mailed or you have to go here, like from a customer experience perspective, that kind of sucks. It does. It also, that kind of toxicity precludes things like this from happening. And that is inside of a product where we're taking risk, we could go to our payer partner and say, look, we believe the biggest barrier for patients successfully managing their chronic diseases are their ability to access and stay on their medications that are required to manage their condition. We'd like to waive copays for these chronic conditions as long as patients are doing a few things that we want them to do. In the absence of a collaboration, the the, the payer is, is not going to do that largely because their actuaries are going to put a dollar value on that and suggest that if we waive a benefit or we waive a copay and create a, a new benefit that we've got to account for that in the premium pricing of the product and that's going to make us less competitive in the marketplace. Well, when you're doing this jointly with a provider, they're willing to take a chance on that because if they're wrong, we're going to be on the hook for the loss with them. And I think so, you know, those sorts of innovative approaches to things like chronic disease benefit consumers at the end of the day. So I think your point's a good one. There is a consumer experience that is available inside these sorts of collaborative efforts that would never exist in a siloed approach. Yeah, I could see that it would, it could potentially be certainly a consideration if you're responsible for downstream costs and patients have a difficult time getting their insulin or, you know, pick something else, which is absolutely essential if you're trying to control downstream costs, like the patients that have good access to those drugs are going to obviously have a better shot at doing better than ones that have huge barriers there. Yeah, and in all honesty, the value of a, a $50 copay or versus the value of someone taking their drugs, it's not even a competition. You know, the value of them staying on their drugs is much more important in our mind than, than them having, quote unquote, skin in the game and, and monthly having to shell out a, a $50. 
the reality of it is, is that for for far too many people, they don't they don't deal with one chronic disease. They they have several, and many of those chronic diseases require you know more than one drug to help control them. So when you start talking about patients who have hypertension and high cholesterol and diabetes, I mean they may well be on five or six drugs each with a copay. That's an enormous barrier to taking care of themselves. And we think we've actually shown both when I was at Blue Cross and we've seen now at Ochsner that when we've piloted the waiving of that cost share, the outcomes more than pay for that. And so we're big believers in trying to remove as many barriers as we can on the cost side for a consumer for chronic drugs that are important to the management of their chronic conditions. Yeah, I interviewed Mark Fendrick, who echoed a similar theme. Mark was the guy that actually first, you know, he's in Michigan, first opened my eyes to that. I met him when I had just got to Blue Cross. And, and so we, we did pilot some work based on, on his ideas. And for sure, it's, it's played out in multiple different populations now. It's just so vexing that it hasn't taken off more. Like why we still are cost shifting to employees or consumers in, in general the cost of increasingly expensive pharmaceuticals that are absolutely critical to preventing the adverse outcomes that cost us all so much. We really haven't changed the paradigm of benefit design as it comes to drugs. I think it's a big opportunity in this country. Is there any place that you would want to direct people to learn more about your work? Yeah, a few ideas. I mean, certainly I'm on LinkedIn and I've got links to several articles or interviews there on my LinkedIn page. Some of the things I've spoken about in public are on YouTube as well. And then finally, there's a book that features some of my work. It's called From Competition to Collaboration, written by Bob Sachs and Tracy Duberman. And they highlighted some of the leadership skills required in this space and, and some of my work there. So I would shamelessly plug their book for them and, and uh, ask folks to check that out if they, have, if they have a moment. Dr. David Carmouche, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. That was great. I re- really appreciate you having me. Thanks. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.